0: Welcome, dress listeners, to yet another edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we answer your always excellent queries and questions. And today's question comes to us from listener Lai Prothero, who wrote to us asking, or rather saying, Hi, April and Cassidy, thanks so much for your fabulous podcast. My favorite thing to do is to listen to it while I do needlework, best therapy ever. I have a question. Was there any one fabric that changed the way we make and view clothes? Hmm. And I thought that this was a very interesting, Cass, because I realized that while well, we have, of course, chatted about when we do see the beginning of stretch and denim in one of our very first minisodes, we haven't really talked too much about some of the science that goes into creating textiles.
1: Yeah. And something which is so, so fascinating and interesting. And as our listeners know, you and I are both lucky to have studied this a bit in Uh, our our graduate program at FIT. And we took these classes and these lab courses during that time. And as I think we've mentioned, one of the strengths of our program was how well-rounded that course load was. So for instance, because we both did the curatorial route, but we had to take this wide range of classes that included collections management and conservation. And the latter was particularly rigorous, but so fun. I had so much fun using those loops that we, we were given that you would like, it's like a, A little Mm -hmm. tiny magnifying glass that you would put on the fabric and you could literally do a thread count of each individual thread um, in the fabric, which was so fun. So we learned so much in those classes. Um, We learned how to distinguish between synthetic and natural dye stuffs to identifying different types of fibers under the microscope for conservation purposes. So this was definitely one of the harder courses in our program, but also one of the most interesting and rewarding.
0: Hi. 100% agree, and I just have to say, I still think about this from time to time. My mind was definitely blown when we started talking about how many of the synthetic and man-made fibers, how they were and continue to be made today. So in light of Lai's question, I immediately thought of the scientific quest to create artificial silk, or rather what we now more commonly call rayon. So, Lai, I hope what we're about to say, you know, satisfies your query, because more than likely, a large portion of your wardrobe is fashioned from wood. <laughs> I'm sure that is
1: not what listeners were expecting you to say, but it is so, so fascinating. (laughs) And we've often referenced the development of new technologies on the show in relationship to the industrial revolution of the 19th century and how these developments really aided in the expansion of the fashion and textile trades. And the story of Rayon is no exception, except for the fact that it begins with a bit of a sad tale. You know, as we know, silk was a staple of the luxury fashion industry for centuries. And starting the 1840s, French silk farmers began to notice a disease that was plaguing both their adult and embryo silkworms. And this was thanks to a spore forming parasite known as peprin, or pepper disease, which prevented larva from developing properly. It basically left them unable to tackle the task of spinning cocoons. So this epidemic, it spread outside of the French silk farms to other silk upper centers around the world, including Italy and Spain. And by the mid 1860s, both the French and Italian silk industries were on the verge of collapse. It's terrible.
0: Yeah, it it was really, really bad. And farmers, scientists, and industrialists were both desperate and perplexed by what was happening. And in 1865, members of the French government approached scientist Louis Pasteur to request his assistance in determining the exact cause of this epidemic, which now basically threatened to destabilize the entire economy of the French silk-producing regions. And Pastor got on it right away, and his discovery revealed that the disease was spread both from infected mulberry leaves, which the silkworms depended upon, as well as parents laying infected eggs, which basically led to significant changes eventually once people realized what was happening um, in how this practice of sericulture or, or silkworm farming was done around the world. And so Pasteur's, you know, discoveries basically tempered the spread of the disease, but pepper disease was not eradicated. And in 1884, the French Academy of Science once again issued an appeal to scientists to save the silk industry. And among some of the scientists that set out to tackle this task was, I was very surprised to learn this, cast, the illustrious American scientist Thomas Edison, as well as a lesser known in the U.S. French scientist whose name was Count Hilaire de Chardonnay and he lived in Besançon, France.
1: So from what we could ascertain from primary sources of the late 19th century, the figure of Count Chardonnay could well have been ripped from the pages of a Gothic novel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's portrayed in the press as this elusive and quite romantic character. The New York Times actually describes him as an independently wealthy nobleman who may have been directly involved in more than one clandestine plot to restore both French and Spanish noblemen to their country's respective thrones. So a little bit more digging maybe could reveal more about those plots, but his vast fortune allowed for him to pursue science as his sole vocation. And rather than cure pepper disease, he actually set out to create an alternative to natural silk itself. Can't you just picture this in the pages of a novel, April?
0: Oh, yeah. The more I was reading about him, I was like, yeah, he was a character... (laughs) and a half, maybe a character and three quarters. But, um, you know, apparently other people at this time were quite taken by this story as well. So, in 1889, headlines in the American press screamed, quote, a wonderful discovery, the poor silkworm to be put out of business, and also, quote, Count Chardonnay's silk, immense value claimed for this new invention. And the discovery is actually accepted as something far above the ordinary accomplishments of the chemical world, and I'm I'm still quoting, um, in the land of the discoverer, a.k.a. France, as is testified by the fact that the only Grand Medal of Honor which was conferred at the Paris Exposition was given to Count Chardonnay for his discovery. So this was a really big deal, particularly to the French textile trade.
1: And in September of 1896, Cosmopolitan magazine, and yes, that Cosmo magazine, although at this time it was not a fashion publication, it billed itself as a first class family magazine, but I digress. So Cosmo published an article which detailed Chardonnay's process for creating artificial silk and that he did it from wood. Quote, it is very generally known that a large proportion of the world's paper supply is made from straw and wood, but the production of silk from wood is a comparatively recent accomplishment. As in the manufacture of paper, the wood is first transformed into pulp. The fibrous texture of the wood is completely obliterated in the pulping process and pulp after thorough cleansing has the appearance and consistency of a thick
0: gum. The gum was in place in cylinders, which featured these tiny little glass pipes at the ends, which were known as glass silkworms. So when pneumatic pressure was forced through the cylinder, these teeny little minuscule glob lobes of the gum were created. And then each of these tiny little sticky bits were then drawn into very, very fine filaments, which were connected to a spinning machine and also, quote, Revolving bobbins turning wood into silken yarns. So well this I just simplified this process very much, Kat. <laughs> I do believe that Chardonnay's specific process also included this other step of which was called denitration. And we don't need to get into that for our purposes today. But at its most simple, this process was basically using liquid wood and it was being shot through these teeny tiny little shower heads, and then those little filaments were spun into threads, which then could be woven.
1: So needless to say, Chardonnay's process and products spawned massive interest in the textile industry. Among the many advantages of artificial silk at this time was considered the fact that color could actually be added directly at the pulp stage. So it eliminated the need for subsequent dyeing, and it also increased the luster of the fibers. So creating artificial or quote-unquote art silk, as it was also sometimes called, also cost approximately one-third of the price.
0: Quote, The appearance of the fabrics made of the first products from the chemist's laboratory differed from silk only in the evenness of the colors and the brighter luster of the artificial articles. In every other aspect, it puzzled the wits of experienced silk handlers to discover any difference from the articles from pure silk. And this was published in the New York Times at the launch of Chardonnay's Business Enterprise in 1889. In the US,
1: Chardonnay sold rights to pertinent patents for the whopping sum of $500,000, which basically translates to about $15 million today. And that's just the U.S. rights. Many other countries clamor to buy the trade secrets and rights to produce artificial silk in their own regions as well. And the spur to action was also probably driven by the fact that both the Japanese and Chinese silk industries were now also afflicted by pepper disease, by this epidemic which had plagued European silk farms for decades prior. So many textile manufacturers, you know, they hedged their bets by getting in early into the artificial silk trade during the tail end of the 19th century.
0: During the 19-teens, we see artificial silks entering the fashion market in mass. First, we typically see artificial silks used for accessories like artificial flowers and hair ornaments. However, by the 1920s, as women's were daily declared in 1926, quote, gigantic rayon expansion and wide increase in use in the U.S. garment industry, particularly Cass for use in lingerie and undergarments. So, well, at this time in the 1920s, this term artificial silk was still occasionally used, we increasingly see the terminology being switched to quote-unquote rayon. And even rayon as kind of like a generic term was sometimes branded even further by the manufacturer, as in the case of selinese which was a company that produced rayon in both Britain and the U.S. during the 1920s. And you will oftentimes see this word on garment tags and in print advertisements, advertised as selenies, not specifically as its generic term rayon.
1: And according to Women's Wear Daily, by 1923, the global production of rayon fibers outpaced that of natural silk fibers by a whopping 30%. That is huge. This, of course, still remained a small fraction of the world's cotton production, but dress listeners... Go check out your garment labels. That rayon viscous or cupra residing in your wardrobe, they all belong to this same category of textiles, which are woven from regenerated cellulose threads, which could be wood, cotton, or bamboo. New innovations in cellulose fiber technologies during the 21st centuries has led to even further refinement of this fiber. You can head over to Tencel's website, for instance, T-E-N-C-E-L dot or Tencel to learn more about their closed loop process for producing cellulose lyocell and model fabrics, which are some of the most responsibly produced textiles on the market today.
0: So, a listener, lie. we hope that we answered your question about fabrics that changed the way we all dress, and I bet it would have been a hard sell to convince many of you listening that your closet is actually chock full of wooden garments, but we <laughs> promise you, we promise you that it's true, um, and like Cass said, uh, check your garment labels, and please consider the legacy of Count Chardonnay and his quest for artificial silk next time you get dressed.
1: Please join us this Tuesday for our full-length episode. And if you'd like to submit your own question for a future fashion history mystery, you can do so by emailing us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And of course, you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode.
0: Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeart Video that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you all on Tuesday. The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.
1: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.